when we read from the Christian scriptures, we're doing more than just studying the words of an ancient text. We believe that God, being alive, can speak to us through his word. And so let's take a moment to clear our minds, quiet our hearts, to receive what he has from his word this evening. From the Gospel of Luke. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him. And strengthened him. Being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The word of the Lord. Hi everyone, my name is Talia and I'm one of the interns here at NOVA um, and I'm thankful for the chance to get to share with you this evening. We've been in a series during Lent called Subversive Jesus where we've been um, looking at different passages in ways that Jesus completely challenged and changed the expectations that people had for him and for what it looks like to follow after God. Um, Instead of praising the religious leaders of the time, he actually uplifted the outcasts and those on the margin of society. And he chose to teach deep and rich theologies through simple things like meals, like food. And tonight we're going to see the way that he completely changes how we think about prayer. He displays this honest prayer and calls us to this counterintuitive surrender. A few years ago, I was volunteering at a refugee camp in Greece called Moria, and I've, I kind of acted as the liaison between the people who were living in the camp um, and arriving at the camp for kind of sanctuary and our office, which coordinated all of the housing. Um, and I have a lot of memories from that time, but one memory was particularly humbling. I was talking to this one young guy from Afghanistan on a pretty quiet afternoon. Uh, He wanted a different living situation. All we could offer him at the time was just a sleeping bag, no tent or anything. And as we were talking, I all of a sudden heard this loud, clanging, abrupt sound right above my head, and my automatic reaction was to duck and jerk towards the office door. But after about a split second of my panic, I realized it was um, some kids throwing some rocks on the metal tin roof that kind of covered our area. They were really big rocks, so they made a big sound. <laughs> but I just kind of sheepishly like came back to the guy, and I was like, hi. And he just looked at me almost amused, and he said, you wouldn't survive a day in Afghanistan. And I was incredibly humbled in that moment. But my body had automatically gone into this fight-or-flight response. I automatically ducked at what I sensed might have been some danger. And it's an incredible thing that our bodies do this. It's uh, what people describe it as this physiological response that happens when we sense danger is that we go into flight or fight mode. And it's this incredible design and gift of our bodies that it automatically seeks to protect us when it senses something's off. It's a good thing. But there are also times 
When following God, patterning our lives after Christ requires surrender, not flight or flight. Flight, this is going to be hard, all the sermon. Fight or flight. (laughs) This does not apply to situations of abuse or where there is no ultimate goodness for others or glorification of God. But there can be difficult and hard situations that require complete dependence on God and not ourselves and our own abilities. They can require us to let go of control and trust in our Father's sovereignty, love, and mercy. And they can require us to think our reliance, our reliance on our automatic flight-or-flight nature. In the passage we just read, Jesus is getting ready to face something that would undoubtedly move anyone into that flight-or-fight response. He had arrived in Jerusalem a few days before in Luke 19, and he started on the Mount of Olives, riding on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. And as he did so, people around him were praising him, shouting, blessed is the king. But he knew that within a few days, those shouts of praise and blessed is the king would turn into shouts of crucify him. And in the week in between, when in the week in between before those shouts changed, Jesus spent his time in in Jerusalem teaching at the temple, condemning the abusive practices of religious leaders, uplifting the outcast and the poor, spending time in teaching his disciples. So he would do that each day. And we read in Luke 21 that every night he would then go back to the Mount of Olives, withdrawing from all of the intensity and craziness of the city. Because he wasn't just teaching and doing all these things. People around him We're building the intensity of the week. The crowds wanted to see and hear more, and the religious leaders wanted to condemn him and plotted to kill him. And so to withdraw from it all, he would take his disciples and go to this quiet hillside every evening. But he wasn't just withdrawing from the clouds and the intensity of the city. Going to the Mount of Olives allowed Jesus the space to put into practice something that he repeatedly taught his disciples to do throughout his whole time. So would you read again verses 39 through 41 with me? Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching that place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed. Prayer was central to how Jesus lived and to what he taught. He prayed when he was alone or with with the company of others. He prayed during significant moments like his baptism and mundane ones. He prayed when the crowds loved him, and he prayed, prayed when the crowds hated him. And he challenged his disciples and others to pray with honesty and mercy and with trust in their compassionate God, He taught perseverance in prayer in the midst of all kinds of life circumstances. And in these verses, again, he calls his disciples to pray that you will not fall into temptation. The disciples, he knows, are about to face a trial of faith as they will watch Jesus, their teacher and friend, die at the hands of Roman oppressors whom they thought he was here to conquer. And the chief priests who he had been speaking against and condemning the abusive practices of will look like they actually get the final blow, the final say. And although Jesus had warned them of this and all these things that were happening, and told them also of his victory to come over death and evil, he knows that the disciples will be tempted to forget everything that they had been told. Have you 
Ever been in a situation where you think you're prepared and then when the thing or event actually happens, you realize you have no idea what's going on and no idea what to do? As a person who'd recently discovered I have ADHD, this is me all the time. <laughs> I, hear often, um, I hear this often also from new parents who just have a child and they have no idea what to do all of a sudden, or I felt this as I started grad school. I feel it three years into grad school still that I have no idea what's happening. Um, I, feel this, uh, I hear this from missionaries who move to countries um, who are trying to find their bearing in a place that they thought they knew it was going to look like. It's not until we're in a new situation that we realize just how much we have to learn. And this, the disciples were about to face something that even if they thought they understood what was going to happen, even if they thought they knew where Jesus was leading, it was going to be so much more confusing, more difficult, and more faith-bending than they could have imagined. And Jesus knowing that, urges them in the hours leading up to all the events that would take place to pray. Prayer was a preparation that they needed to face all that was coming. And while prayer can be confusing and feel complex, at its simplest definition, prayer is a way that we're invited to commune with and connect with God. It's a way that we express a need for God, express a desire to depend on him and rest in his care. It's an act of remembering that we are not alone, but have a father who sees us and loves us and hears us. And through, th through prayer, we bring everything that we are, our hopes, emotions, dreams, needs, wants, questions, into the compassionate, redeeming, sanctifying presence of God. In that one hand, Jesus is telling his disciples that prayer was a preparation that they needed to face what was coming. It would be the steadying practice when everything all of a sudden got chaotic. And Jesus, knowing what he was asking the disciples to do would be difficult and vulnerable and challenging, puts his own words into practice here, showing them and us what this kind of prayer really looks like. So let's read verses 41 through 44. He withdrew about a stone's throw away beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel of heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. The intensity and weightiness of this prayer is evident immediately. The Greek word that's translated withdrew here is more than just uh, Jesus kind of wandered away. It's more emotionally charged than that. If you've ever been in a situation where you all of a sudden feel like a burst of emotion coming forth or you're about to break into tears or you feel anger rising up and you just have to get out of the room or out of the situation before it explodes, then you've experienced something more like what Jesus is experiencing in this moment. He was drawn away by what was coming up inside of him. And instead of taking the Jewish traditional stance of prayer, which was standing, Jesus falls to his knees a sign of the weight of the grief and the sorrow that he was experiencing in that moment. And then we are let into the content of Jesus' prayer, one of the only times in Luke that we actually hear the words that he prays. And he opens with, Father, if you are willing. And in this simple phrase, he declares who he is speaking to, his Father, and points to his sovereignty and power, not his ability he echoes that again at the end, saying, yet not my will, but yours be done. 
He is willing to surrender to the Father's redemptive will, no matter the cost. And he knows the Father's will for humanity is for humanity to be restored to relationship with the Father, to be rescued from our sin and our destructive patterns and habits, and to be freed from the powers of death and sin that saturate and seemingly rule the world. But in the middle of this commitment and full surrender to the Father's will, he makes this vulnerable and honest statement. Take this cup from me. This term cup, usually in the Old Testament, often referred to God's wrath or righteous wrath against sin and evil. And in the New Testament, it was most often used in reference to Jesus' suffering and death that would come. And Jesus knows that, knew that the pain and suffering was coming and evidently wishes here that it could be different. We see this tension rise in this prayer between Jesus surrendering wholly to the Father's will and wanting also to avoid this cup, if possible. And the Christian faith affirms that Jesus was both fully human and fully God, and I believe that this is where this tension arises from. As fully God, fully divine, fully one with the Father, Jesus willed with all of his being to restore the lost and rescue the wounded and free the captives of sin and death. He would willingly, gladly, out of love, take the cup of death, suffering, and righteous wrath in order to replace it with the one that we find on this communion table, the cup that points to his restorative mercy, his sacrificial love, and to new life. But as fully human, it's easy for us to imagine that, of course, he wouldn't have wanted to go through the death and suffering that was right around the corner. He had real friendships in which he would experience betrayal and abandonment and rejection. He had a real body that would feel every cut and bruise and whip on his back and thorn on his brow. He had a real nervous system that was likely automatically urging him into that flight or fight response. My siblings and I um, truly love each other now, but growing up, whenever they would pick on me or I wanted to get my way, um, my mode was flight, um, which I know is very stereotypical for all the youngest siblings in the room. And um, so I would run straight to my parents whenever things would happen. And I am terribly sorry to all the older or older siblings in the room on behalf of youngest siblings everywhere who experienced the same. Um, but here in the garden, in the face of what was coming towards them, Jesus' version of his flight or fight response was to run directly to his father, bringing the tension in his being wholly before him. And after we see this prayer, we have these two interesting verses, verses 43 and 44 where an angel is strengthening him, and he is in anguish and sweating intensely. And there have actually been centuries-long debate on whether or not these two verses were included in the original manuscripts of Luke. And the main reason people argued against the inclusion of them is because the way that they depict Jesus is almost too human. Jesus here is in a vulnerable and distraught state. He needs to be strengthened and supported and is physically in such deep, visceral distress. And those who fought against the inclusion of these verses were people in the early church who affirmed this um, belief called docetism, or the belief that Jesus was holy and only divine, and he only seemed human. 
He only seemed to suffer, but didn't really die because he wasn't really human. And if that was true, then these verses couldn't be true, couldn't be in Scripture. But these verses have since been largely affirmed and included because they depict Jesus in such a human way. And it is because of this kind of intimate and experiential knowledge of human temptation and trial, of that human urge towards flight or fight, that we can now fully trust him with all of our own temptations and trials and tendencies. He lived it himself. We see that in these verses. And because of that, we're told later in Hebrews 4 that we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence and receive not judgment or shame for our humanness, but mercy and grace. These are two trustworthy verses that point to the compassionate person of Christ. We don't know how long Jesus was there weeping and sweating and wrestling and talking to his father and being strengthened in his presence. But he eventually stands back up and goes to his disciples resolute in this decision to not fight and not flee, but to walk towards the cross in full surrender to the father's redemptive will. Let's read the last verses again, Luke uh, 22, verses 45 and 46. When he rose from prayer, he went back to his disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them, get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And if we keep reading, we realize that even before Jesus is finished speaking, the Roman guards and the chief priests and his former friend and disciple are there to arrest him. Leading up to that moment, Jesus' preparation and the disciples' preparation were vastly different. Jesus came to the Mount of Olives in anguish and distress, went to the Father, brought all that he had before him, and was strengthened and seen by his Father and walked out of there resolute in his surrender to his father, not to the guards. His disciples came to the mountain, distressed and in anguish, and they were exhausted from sleep, and so they fell asleep. And when they rose back out of their slumber, they were still most likely exhausted from sorrow, and now they were confused because they were thrown into this whole new situation all of a sudden. And we see the results of Jesus' prayer and the disciples' slumber unfolds as Jesus', as Jesus arrest and death unfold as well. When the arrest begins, his disciples automatically go into fight mode, jumping into action and out of panic, cutting off some guy's ear, but Jesus stops it all. He heals the man's ear and is calm and controlled as he goes with them to the, from the Mount of Olives. Jesus does not fight or run or surrender to Judas and the guards. Rather, he is living out dependence on the Father and resolute surrender to the Father. And as the hours passed, his disciples then shift to flight mode. They scatter and hide and run and are terrified. Peter denies Christ three times, saying that he doesn't even know him just to avoid conflict. And in Luke 23, we see Jesus tempted three times, challenged by three different people to save yourself, prove you're the Messiah by saving yourself. But he... Uh, but he did not fail to prove himself as the true Messiah by not fighting back or saving himself in some grand, impressive, awe-inspiring way. Rather, it would be his life laid down for the sake of us. 
that would prove who he truly was. He did not need to run or fight. His time on the prayer of the Mount of Olives sustained him through every temptation to either fight with his disciples or flee from the situation. The kind of prayer Jesus demonstrated is the kind of prayer that Jesus calls us and his disciples to. It's an intense wrestling and resolute surrender. This is a good song. (laughs) Prayer is our mode of fight or flight. Prayer is the way that we fight temptation to choose our own path and choose our own battles rather than following Christ and laying down our lives for the sake of others. Prayer is a way that we run directly to the Father in the face of pain and suffering. As the youngest sibling, running straight to my father should be my automatic response. I just won't feel so bad about it this time. And as a person prone to flight mode when I hear loud metallic sounds above my head, again, ducking into the safety of God's comfort and strength should be my automatic response. But Jesus knows that it is difficult for us to truly surrender all that we are to God to completely lay down our lives and our hopes and our desires and our dreams, our wishes, our fears, our anxieties before the Father. He experienced that on the Mount of Olives. And in the afterglow of his resurrection and ascension, Jesus still has not forgotten the trials and temptations that he faced in his humanity and that we face today. We face every flight or fight moment, not alone, but with a God who compassionately and experientially knows, who sovereignly sees, and faithfully strengthens us in the midst of every temptation and trial. And as we go through this coming week, I'd invite each of us to remain attentive to where and when we are tempted to fight, to fight for ourselves, to fight for our control, to fight out of fear or out of pain. And can we also be curious about when and where we are tempted to run when things are hard? And as we do so, I also pray that we would look upon our stories and our lives with the same compassion and love, understanding and grace that our Father does. And let's fight to make prayer our mode of fight or flight. We can find our version of the Mount of Olives, whether that's Cheeseman Park or your armchair in your living room. And we can withdraw to that place and that practice of prayer. Whether that prayer is journaling or walking and thinking or talking out loud in your car while trying to avoid going too far over the speed limit. And practicing, and we can practice in those spaces and places, pouring out honestly our temptations and trials before our Father who sees and loves us and receive in turn his grace and strength. And then from that place and that practice of prayer, we can then follow Christ into a life of sacrificial love of God and of neighbor. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that we do not go into this week alone. We do not have a God that who doesn't understand these things and these situations, these trials and temptations. But we have a God who is so intimately involved in our lives and intimately knows what it's like. I pray, God, that we would look upon ourselves and our stories and our tendencies with compassion, the same compassion and grace that you do. And we praise you, God, for who you are and for the love and mercy that you continually pour out onto us. 
In your great and holy name we pray, Lord. Amen.